You're listening to an Irish Medical Times podcast, Doctoring with Dr. Chris Luke. In this episode, Chris talks to the former master of the Rotunda Hospital, Sam Coulter-Smith, about his new book on his life, being the master of the Rotunda, and a life in medicine. Hi, I'm Chris Luke, and I, I'm a columnist with the Irish Medical Times, and it's my pleasure this afternoon to talk with Sam Coulter-Smith, former master of the Rotunda Maternity Hospital in, in Dublin, one of Ireland's greatest voluntary institutions. Uh, I'm particularly interested in talking to him about his recent publication, uh, a book called Delivering the Future, Reflections of a Rotunda Master. So, Sam, hi. Hi, Chris. Um, I wonder, we're both South Dublin boys. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a long-term exile from Dublin. Uh, you were briefly in exile in the NHS too. But I wonder if perhaps you might start by going through your, your, your biography very basically, just starting with your, your beginnings in Dublin in the early 60s. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm the product of uh, Rotunda, Rotunda staff. My mum and dad both worked here in the Rotunda. My dad was a, a doctor. Uh, junior hospital doctor at, at the time. My mum was a, a, a staff midwife and uh, they met here, fell in love and uh, and made me. So, Very Mills um, and Boone. Yeah, and I was delivered by Eddie Lilly, who was to become master of the Rotunda at home um, in 1962. And uh, that's where my, I suppose that's where my roots lie very much uh, with the Rotunda. And I was brought up with the, with the Rotunda. My, my parents both had long lifelong friends that, that worked here so uh, that association goes goes way back so i suppose there's a there's a little bit of uh, you know destiny fulfilled um uh, when i eventually when i when i did medicine and qualified um i thought i was going to be a gp which is what my dad ended up doing um but when i did my own sort of gp training scheme i fell into obstetrics and absolutely loved it and because i knew a lot of the people uh, working here um, I think that probably just accelerated my, 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 my progress. It got me to do things a little bit more quickly, maybe, maybe than some people. And, uh, and I fell in love with obstetrics and, and never left. So, uh, and I think, interestingly, uh, at the very beginning, I think, were you born at home? Born at home. And yeah. that was all part of the Rotunda Community Outreach. Uh, well, no, it, it wasn't. No, I mean, my, that the, the, the district service was very much local to the Rotunda, to within you know, a couple of miles of the, of the rotunda, and um, I was brought up in, in Terenure, which was... Uh, a bit too far out. A bit too far away. Yeah. Um, but the, the district service was up and running at that, at that stage. Yeah. Right. And since then, of course, there's been a drift back into the hospitals as opposed to the community and nursing home births that was quite popular in the early part of the, the 20th century. It, it was, and, and because of infection risks, uh, I think a lot of births took place and were encouraged to take place outside the hospital as the numbers... That the rotunda were looking after grew infection control became became an issue um, births happened outside the hospital and um, midwives and doctors would go out and deliver people at home and uh, ultimately in the in the sort of late 1950s i think that's when the district came to an end um, and the births in hospital then became the norm and of course with that we've seen a huge plummeting in terms of mortality, maternal mortality and infant mortality over the last 150 years. Absolutely. And, and, and it's thanks to the, the initiatives that were put in place and the quality improvement measures that were put in place by the Rotunda and, and the other maternity hospitals that that, that, that has happened. And nowadays we're, we're very lucky. And sometimes I think we don't realise that, uh, you know, that the, 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 the maternity hospitals, 
hospitals in Ireland are some of the safest places on the planet to deliver a baby. Um, and I think we forget that sometimes. Yeah. I have a, I must admit, I have a particular per, a personal interest in the Rotunda. Not only has my medical daughter worked here recently, uh, uh, but my mother was born here in, in 1919. Uh, but I'm, I'm very interested in, in the even the more remote history of, of, of the hospital. Can you, can you take us back to the very start of the Rotunda and its first master, Bartholomew Moss? Yeah, Bartholomew Moss was a, was a visionary. Um, he was, he was uh, born in, in, in the Midlands. Um, Came to Dublin to to uh, to to train as a as a surgeon. Um, he joined the the British Army and became a, a, a an army surgeon, if you like. Um, on his way back from from um, from Spain, he uh, visited maternity units in in Paris and elsewhere, and brought some of those ideas back to Dublin. He realised at the time that. That uh, the maternal and infant mortality was was massively high, um, and decided that he was going to do something about it. And um, he he started the he he began the the uh, the formed the what is now the Rotunda Hospital, um, in uh, the first the first version of it I suppose opened in 1745. The current uh, hospital on Parnell Square was completed in 1757. And, and we've been here ever since. Um, he was followed by some absolutely amazing people. And the, the history of the Rotunda is, a, is a, fascinating, a fascinating subject because there were so many um, good people involved in, in, in running the hospital over the years. Some visionaries that followed, followed Moss. He started the, the process, but there were many, many fantastic people who followed that. And they introduced improvement after improvement. And the Rotunda... Is, has been here now for 277 years. When did the, I mean, it's a huge campus, a huge footprint at the top of O'Connell Street in Dublin. When did that campus become recognisable uh, as it is now? Uh, pretty much from, from, the, from, the, from, from that time, from, from you know, Par- Parnell Square at the top of what would then Sackville Street. Um, the, the square, the Rotunda occupied the, the square. The, the gardens were created by Moss. Um, as an entertainment venue for for music and readings, and uh, people would promenade in, in in the gardens. They would pay to do so, and and that was what began the funding of of the hospital. And it, it's is it is the the it's the currently the oldest maternity hospital in the world, but it's now the oldest voluntary hospital in the, in the country. And is the Gate Theatre and the Ambassador are they part of the original building? And I, am I right in that they're they're actually leased by the hospital? They're they're not part of the original building. The original building was was the existing hospital. The they were built as as an addition fundraising arm um, to to the hospital, and they are now leased. Um, by by the hospital through the friends of the the foundation the Rotunda Foundation and so they bring in an income um, to the to the hospital which is principally used for research and I think one of the things that is at the bedrock of the hospital's ethos is the care for sort of in, indigent uh, in, very impoverished uh, women in the in the in this part of the city in the north part of the city and, and in the counties beyond that'd be right. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the hospital was 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 set up to to care for women, principally in the locality. Uh, but as time has gone on, uh, it is now you know a major national referral centre for 
um, from all over the country. So in, in, in conjunction with our colleagues in the Coombe and, and Hollis Street, we, we, we're, we're really the tertiary referral centre for the most complicated cases in the country. And I was fascinated by the, the you, you've taken us through, the, in, in the first couple of chapters of, of the book, uh, you've taken us through the, the absolutely fascinating history of the hospital and in terms particularly of the infection control and the scientific advances in obstetrics and gynaecology. And at one point I gathered that the, the, the legendary Ignat Semmelweis was planning to come to the Rotunda because it was so famous right across Europe uh, as a sort of beacon of good practice. Yeah, that's that, that's that's absolutely true, and and some amazing people worked here and, and came here to study. And the Rotunda, um, for for many many years, has has been a centre for for undergraduate and postgraduate training, and remains remains that that way. So we're very proud to 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 be working here, and you know we've a we've a, an incredible history and incredible legacy. And I think part part of my reason for for writing the book was to. I suppose highlight the, the 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 history of the hospital, but also to, to highlight the fact that that this, this is a voluntary hospital, and as a voluntary hospital, it has been to the forefront of driving um, driving improvement, driving quality, driving better outcomes, not just locally but for the for the whole country, and um, that's an incredibly um, strong thing to 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 do. It's an incredibly powerful. Um, responsibility um, that 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 we have, and it's very important that we that we continue to do it. Sam, could you take us perhaps through some of the the, the step or steps in in the evolution of maternity care that started, I suppose, or were driven by the rotunda over the last say hundred years? Uh, the, the the main the main key changes, the uh, the main step changes. Um, I, I suppose, I mean, for 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 the first, you know. 150 years, not a lot changed apart from the recognition that that infection was a big issue and cleanliness was was important. Um, the whole advent of anaesthesia, chloroform, general anaesthesia, um, epidural anaesthesia, um, you know, was 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 driven in in Ireland by by the rotunda. Um, the 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 use of cesarean section became um, more common. Um, as a result of the influence of the of the hospital, um, more more laterally um, or more recently, um, all of the all of the, the the sort of the women's health interventions that we now regard as as being normal and commonplace, such as contraception, tubal ligation, infertility treatment, um, physiotherapy. Um, the, even going back a little bit further, the the um, the first gynae unit in, in a maternity hospital was was here at the, at the rotunda. So, you know, it's really been at the forefront of all the advances that have happened in in women's healthcare o- over the years. And of course, that includes things like the Nightingale wards and ventilation. I mean, I was fascinated by the introduction of infection control measures around about the same time as Florence Nightingale was doing that mm. in in the UK after the Crimean. Um, you know the open windows and the you know getting they used to have two or three women per bed, which yeah. is which now seems pretty shocking. But it was the yeah, routine even, in those days. They even drilled holes in the doors yes. to to yeah. improve um, airflow. Fascinating. Yeah. And so tell me, Sam, how did you get on? Apropos ventilation and infection control, how did you get on? Do you think in, with the COVID? I gather there were all sorts of there was, you had a, 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 a degree of agility which some other hospitals might not have had. Yes and no. Um, it's an old hospital. Um, 
we've modernized hugely um, over the over the years. We've new theatres, we've a new labour ward. Um, those sort of the the, the core areas um, that we've improved a lot. We need a natal unit, which is relatively new, but is now too small. Um, so there's some serious um, improvements that still need to, to be made. Unfortunately, um, a lot of our patient accommodation still is in the old part of the hospital, so we still have the Nightingale wards. They desperately need to be up- upgraded to, to more modern facilities. When COVID hit and infection control became, um, became an issue and we needed isolation uh, facilities, that was a real challenge for us. We had to significantly curtail our gynaecology services to, to allow us to decant some of our maternity into the gynae space. That uh, meant that we couldn't uh, operate our, 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 our gynae theatres in the same way. That, and, and gynaecology, as you know, tends to suffer um, when maternity... Um, it's the first thing to give. It is the first thing to give, which is uh, unfortunate, um, but that's a fact of life um, as long as we are where we are. Um, so it was a real challenge. Yeah, but I, I, I gather you did get some commendation from the chief executive of the HSE, Paul Reed, who commended the Rotunda and the other voluntary hospitals on their flexibility in, in responding to the, to yeah, the well, pandemic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. I mean, what, what I, I interviewed Paul Reed for for my book, and um, one of the things that he said to me was that they they were the, the HSE and the Department of Health were blown away by the. The, the response of the of the hospitals, particularly the voluntary hospitals, in relation to their their speed, their agility, their responsiveness, and their their ability to 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 deal with with urgent issues as they as they arose, and he explained that the, the HSE, probably due to its more complex governance structure, would never have been able to to do that. So he was very complimentary, uh, and um, he did he did say that he was up to that he hadn't really understood the voluntary sector completely um he knew it existed but but wasn't sure exactly why it why it was there and why it functioned and why it was different um and i was very gratified to to hear that because i'm i'm a passionate advocate of the voluntary system and i truly believe that it's it it's it's a vital cog in in the wheel of the of the the quality of the service that that we provide and if if it's if it's damaged, if it if, if it can't survive in the way that, that it should, then our health service is going to be poorer um, for that. Before we sort of look to the future, um, can we just perhaps reflect over the last 20 odd years and some of the other sort of crises, the, the national scandals and the crises that directly affected the Rotunda, some of them bypassed the Rotunda. Obviously, there was the Port Leash query, there was the repeal issue, um, but can you remind us about the organ retention uh, issue that uh, was one of the first challenges you faced as a master? Yeah, um, this goes back to um, the early 2000s um, when in, in, uh, in Bristol um, there was a an, an issue um, in the in the in the cardiac unit, cardiac. Um, there was there was similar organ retention issues in Liverpool, particularly with Van Bel- Van Velsen, I think was his name, the pathologist at Alder Hay. That was perhaps where it first blew up. Yes, that's right. Um, but I but I think they then discovered that what was happening was that uh, organs and parts of organs were being retained after stillbirth and birth in and just in and before. Uh, yeah. So, fo- so, so, following on from from um, from what was realised in in the UK, 
um, questions were then asked as to you know what the what the practices were in our maternity units in relation to post mortem activity, and it it emerged that although patients had consented for post mortems, they hadn't re- consented for. Uh, organs to be retained, organs and, and and tissue to be retained from from those postmortems. So this was something that really um, there was a, a public outcry. There was uh, and rightly so. There there were people that were very concerned and upset that things had happened that they hadn't realised. So we uh, my my job um, as the incoming master was to was to deal with that issue and to. I suppose to uh, to take take the rap for for it, and and um, it was something that that we did. We we stood stood up and held our hands up, and and were very clear um, when we had uh, when we had been wrong, when we had made mistakes, when we made errors, that we we held our hands up and said. And you, and you said when you sorry. went back as far as fifty years of of, of pregnancies and births, yeah. uh, in dealing with uh, concerned uh, women. Uh, but I was very impressed in reading the book about the the new facilities, the new ethos, the new service that you provide in terms of bereavement well, and so forth. Resulting from that and and, and from the, the feedback that we got from bereaved parents, because many, many people came back 15, 20, 30 years later to to find out what had happened. And it was I, it was a it was a real learning process for for me. Um, and and as a result of, of, of that, we we completely um, revamped the way that we dealt with with postmortem, the whole consent process, the whole bereavement process. We expanded our bereavement teams, um, and we we created uh, what what ultimately turned out to be new national guidelines for for the whole bereavement process. So, I believe now that we, that we do it better than we did. Um, it's never it's never perfect. There's still, still improvements to be made. But I was I was very proud of the way that the uh, the hospital responded and and people rode in behind me to to help to improve the process. And that was one of just many issues that you contended with uh, as as master. The, an, another issue was was uh, repeal the repeal of, of the eighth um, and with the, the prospect of, of terminations because you, you pointed out at one 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 of your chapters in the book that when you trained in King's Hospital in London, that there were as many terminations, sometimes even more than live births. Uh, in, the, in the end, there was a sort of happy outcome, and and you know, you know, there were there were, but there were lessons. How 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 did you think the whole thing panned out? I suppose the first thing to say is is that 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 we strongly believe that we're not here to uh, to to make to judge people. We're we're here to respond to to people's needs, and and part of a. A comprehensive women's health service is to provide all elements of, of the service. So that means contraception, family planning, um, sterilization when required, um, but also termination in particular circumstances. And all, obviously all of that has to be within current le- legislation. So we welcomed that. I did have con- some concerns. At, at the time that this was happening, the Rotunda was going through the biggest baby boom that we had ever had. My my seven years as master were the busiest in the history of the hospital. Um, it was happening at a time when financially the country was was not in a good place. Um, we were being hamstrung in relation to our to our headcounts. Um, we our budget was was being significantly um, reduced, and at the same time we were being asked to look to af- look after the biggest number of of 
of a pregnant woman that we'd ever had. I think at one stage you nearly hit 11,000 births or pregnant pregnancies in exactly. one year, if exactly. I'm not mistaken. That's, that, that, that's right. And, and, you know, there were, there were, I think it was in 2012, oh, in, over a couple of days in December, we delivered 40, 45 babies in, over the course of 24 hours. That level of activity was unsustainable, and and, and of course some of them were, were not straightforward. There were crises, there were sure. emergencies. So, so my my concern at that time was that if we were being asked to get involved in in yet another service, um, that that our staff would find it difficult to cope with with that level of new activity. Now, as it turned out, it didn't pan out that way because our our colleagues in general practice have really stepped up and taken on a huge burden of that of that workload. Yes, we we were still involved in in, in that end of the service as we should be, uh, but the the number of, of of patients that we end up having to take to theatre to to manage that situation is 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 not high. And it's, it's certainly something that we're, we're happy to manage. Yeah. So in, in fact, in, in summary, there, there wasn't a tsunami that some people had anticipated. Most of it remains medical and very little of it is surgical. Um, Sam, I mean, throughout the book, there are references to the difficulties you faced in dealing with the, the, the layers of bureaucracy that have multiplied over the last 30 years, particularly in, in Irish healthcare. Can you perhaps talk us through some of that uh, up until the, the creation of the HSE, how that changed your relationship with the Department of Health when it was much more personal, perhaps, between the master and, and civil servants, uh, and how you would like to see it evolve if possible? I think one of the advantages of, of, of stepping back from, from the mastership is that you get a chance to reflect. And there's no doubt that um, that I was frustrated and sometimes quite angry at, 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 at some of the, the, the way that I felt we were treated um, during during that time. It was certainly very frustrating. Um, when I got a chance to reflect and wonder, well, why why was it like that? I think that if, if you look back to health board times um, pre-HSE, the, the relationship of voluntary hospitals was directly with the Department of Health. They didn't have any relationship with with the health boards. Um, the health boards had their own their own hospitals that they looked after and managed and um, controlled. When the HSE was created, um, it created a barrier between the hospitals and the Department of Health, and the HSE took on a, a, a an oversight role that had never existed before. I think they the HSE felt that they could and should have more control than the voluntary hospitals wanted them to. And I think there was probably a little bit of kickback um, on, on, on both sides. The HSE probably regarded the voluntaries as the, the naughty boys in the class who wanted to be independent and do their own thing. The voluntaries who had been used to doing their own thing, um, getting funding from the government and just getting on with the job, suddenly found that they had a much tighter um, control being imposed upon them. And and I don't think anybody actually took time to sit down and explain to both sides that, in fact, if this is going to work, it needs to be a much more trusting partnership arrangement. And sadly, that never happened. And I think over time, 
the the relationship became more difficult. <clears throat> in many cases, it became more toxic. And uh, you know, we now have uh, have a situation where there are some very significantly one sided service level agreements being imposed on voluntary hospitals with a level of control which is frankly not necessary. Um, the latest of which of which is 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 a suggestion that that there should be a a financial management system uh, put in place um so that the the HSE has direct oversight over um the finances of voluntary hospitals when in fact voluntary hospitals and their boards have a statutory obligation to to do the right thing and control their finances um so so that level of of oversight is to my mind overstepping the mark not to mention the 250 years pedigree of self-sufficiency and autonomy. Well, I think, uh, I think what you've got to remember is is that the the vast majority of people who who go into the health service, and certainly ninety nine point nine percent of the people that I've met in in the voluntary hospital um, setup, are there to to be positive, to to provide better service, better care. They're motivated to do things better, and they don't need to be controlled. They need to be encouraged. They need to be fostered. They need to be allowed to develop and grow and. And, and do the right thing. And that's one of the things that Paul Reed said to me. He said, you know, he said, maybe, maybe the time has come where we need to give them the money and let them on and do what they do best. And I was gratified to to hear that. Um, but the last thing he said to me was that, you know, he wasn't quite sure how that was going to be achieved. Uh, because I think the, the HSE is a huge organization and um and hard to control. That's interesting, given that again throughout your book. The, the impression is that it's getting harder and harder to manage to manage the HSE's requirement for total control, micromanagement of everything within the voluntary sector. And you actually mention, or you use the word, that, or you talk about the threat of the ethos of the voluntaries being extinguished by this degree of extreme control, uh, this extreme micromanagement. Uh, and you know, do you think that's a real risk? Uh, I do. I, I think I, I, for a couple of reasons. I, I think that the, the number of voluntary institutions in the country has slowly reduced. Um, you know, back when I think when, when I qualified, we had Jervisted and Richmond, both voluntaries. They merged with Beaumont, now a statutory um, statutory hospital. A lot of the smaller voluntaries have have um, have disappeared. Um, Temple Street and Crumlin, both voluntaries, now merged into the the, the new Children's Hospital. Um, no longer voluntary statutory board, um, so I, I think the 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 whole ethos of of, of voluntarism, um, I think is 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 under threat, and I think the voluntaries didn't do themselves any favors by by not coming together into a into a force to be reckoned with. Um, voluntary institutions provide a massive proportion of the of the care. The healthcare to the Irish population. I mean, are there? And, did you say that there are twenty-eight voluntary hospitals, or a little bit less than that? Certainly, uh, anyway, there's, there it's the, in double. Or the, there's double a substantial digits, number of yeah, voluntary in, in, in institutions throughout the country, and and in, in total, I think they it's about three billion that that it costs to to run the voluntary sector, um, but the voluntary sector through through income from 
its own sources from from private fee income and from other other sources um, brings in about 650 million that's a deficit that would need to be uh, that would need to be found um, if 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 the slauncher care we, and we should probably talk about slauncher care because slauncher care is, is yet another issue threat to uh, to to the voluntary well, can, sector. Can we talk again, maybe more specifically about the the, the, the recent political history and the, or what some people would call the re-disorganisation of the health service over the last ten to fifteen years, particularly in relation to bilocation or trilocation, which was Minister Harney's uh, great ambition and perhaps uh, Dr. Riley's ambition. Um, there's been this constant chopping and changing of the plans. Your ambition over the last 15, 20 years has been to mer- not merge, but to partner very firmly and, and tightly with the matter and with Temple Street. Can you uh, tell listeners about the difficulties and all those various plans with, with bilocation? Well, the, the, there's, been a, there's been a variety of, of um, incarnations, I suppose, of, of the, the whole idea of, of bilocation and Way back, I suppose when I when I came back from from London in nineteen ninety six, the the discussions around relocation of the of Temple Street um, were had been underway for quite some time at, at at that stage. That was then having quite a lot of money being spent on it. Um, that plan was shelved, and the, the idea of a of a of of a, of a children's hospital on the north side of the city was was um, was was brought in, actually not on the north side of the city. But the idea of a children's hospital um, somewhere in the city that would combine um, both Crumlin and uh, and Temple Street was uh, was was put forward. The various sites were were looked at: um, Connolly, um, the Matter, the Greenfield site, um, James's. Um, and ultimately, following quite a long review, the matter was chosen as the as the site. There had been discussion um, in the KPMG report around the bilocation of maternity units, and in back in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, KPMG recommended again, following a long review, that the uh, rotunda would go to. To the matter, um, Hollow Street would go to uh, St Vincent's, and uh, the Coombe would go to either Tala or James's. Um, we at the time felt that there was a unique opportunity to trilocate the rotunda with Temple Street and with uh, with the matter, or uh, sorry, the, the children's hospital on the matter site. Trilocated with the with the with the matter and the and the rotunda, and we felt that that would be a, an incredible facility, world class, cradle to grave, um, literally from neonate to to geriatrics, um, all, all the way through, and we felt that that was a, a massive opportunity. Um, and then I suppose for a variety of of of, of different reasons, um, some of them economic, some of them political, that plan was was shelved. And uh, the children's hospital ultimately was then uh, moved to to be developed on the James's site, which it currently is is, is doing so. So 
the the next phase of of, of this was that uh, that the hospital groups were 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 formed. Uh, John Higgins um, and a, a group of senior people um, looked at the whole idea of hospital groups, um, and the rotunda was in a group with uh, Connolly um, and with Our Lady's Hospital of Drogheda and uh, Cavan. Um, the matter was excluded from that group um, because the idea was that they would be the groups would be based around academic centres and not geographical catchment areas. This was a big problem for for the rotunda because we have, and for many many years we've we have tried very hard to uh, have very strong link clinical links with the matter. We have numerous joint appointments. We have our anaesthetists are sister jointly appointed between the two. We have fantastic access to intensive care, to imaging when one required. We're literally 400 yards from door to door. And it's, it is a virtual campus. So this new idea of a hospital group that didn't include the matter um, was, a, was an issue for us. We did try to battle hard against it. Um, and... Uh, Professor Higgins did uh, make reference in his report to the fact that the special relationship between the rotunda and the matter should continue. Um, but what the, I suppose the the issue that 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 then came along was that 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 the rotunda should now co-locate with with Connolly, and that is current government policy. Um, I think what many people may not realise is that that Connolly in its current form uh, couldn't. Um, house the the rotunda and couldn't service the rotunda's needs in relation to the complexity of of care that is that is required. Connolly would essentially need to be redeveloped, uh, rebuilt, and uh, redesigned to to allow that to to happen. Um, that is not going to happen for for many many years, um, and will be quite a costly procedure. So it will involve the building of two new hospitals on the on the Connolly campus. Not to mention the, the difficulties, as you pointed out, um, with governance and legal status. Because I gather from the book that um, only CHI, Children's Health Ireland, has legal status. The other groups do not. The, the governance is all still very uncertain and, and uh, non-specific. Yeah, well, a lot of the changes that, that, that have happened um, have come about without any, any legal... Um, Illegal basis exactly. Um, the 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 this the, the relationship between voluntary hospitals within hospital groups is still a little bit woolly. Um, groups don't don't have any uh, legal uh, influence or authority over voluntary hospitals, um, and that that relationship is something that. That does require some work and some clarity um, to to allow that to to work effectively. And as I've said previously, I think that a trusted partnership is is the way forward. Um, that uh, that allows voluntary hospitals to work to to do what they do best within a hospital group. Um, I have to say that within the RCSI hospitals group, it's worked reasonably well. Um, the Rotunda has been able to adopt a, a hub and spoke model when it comes to 
providing better maternity services and better access for for women in in both Rohada and Cavan to subspecialist services. Um, there's it would be very difficult for Drogheda or Cavan as individual hospitals to attract subspecialist fetal medicine um, services. But if we we've been able to provide those services, as I say, on a hub and spoke model. Um, perinatal pathology services also uh, provided on the same on the same basis and the whole neonatal transport system in addition risk management it works really well within within those th- within our three uh, maternity units um, just this afternoon we've had a serious incident management forum meeting um, uh, where we share knowledge share expertise and share learning from from serious clinical incidents and that's something that I'm very proud of that, that we've been able to introduce on balance, would you be optimistic? You've you've talked about difficulties in establishing relationships, mutually respectful, trusting relationships with people that you know, such as existed when perhaps Peter McKenna was master. He he was able to go straight to people he knew and had relationships with in the Department of Health, and that's that's long before the HC was established. But now, given the, the you know the positive comments of Paul Reed, would you be optimistic? That with the 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 dialogue forum, the the voluntary healthcare forum, the the, the new groups of voluntary uh, hospitals institutions, uh, would you be optimistic that you know that there is the possibility of that those kind of working relations? I'd like to say yes, but I, I think unfortunately, as you as you get older and a bit grayer and lose a little bit of hair, you 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 do become a little bit skeptical, um, and. I'd like to think that the conversation I had with Paul Reed reflects something a, a wider a wider sense within within the HSE, but I'm not sure that it does. Um, as you rightly say, the the you following on from the independent review group who looked at the relationship between voluntary hospitals and, and the HSE produced a report um, suggesting that you know some pointers as to how the relationship might 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 get better. The HSC produced a, a document in response to, to that, which on the surface of it looked a, a little bit more welcoming and, and, and a little bit better, like the relationship might, might improve. But towards the end of that document, they, 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 they still stress that they want to introduce a, a financial management system which will control the finances. So at, at one level, the HSE are creating some mood music, which is a little bit more optimistic. But um, the end of the document would suggest that at the end of the day, it's still, it's still a command and control situation that they're looking for. And, so, and hence the use of the word fractured uh, in terms of the relationship between the HSE and the voluntary sector. Yes, absolutely, and I, I think the the, the whole um, Slauncher Care agenda. Although I, I don't want to appear uh, as a as a skeptic for Slauncher Care, I think there's a lot of very positive uh, ideas and policies in there. I think that there there's some wonderful ideas, and it's going to be expensive, but there are things in there that are very good. Um, however, I, I think that the the whole idea of taking uh, private care out of public hospitals will remove 650 million euro of funding out of the voluntary sector. And if you do that, that's, that is the discretionary funding which allows voluntary hospitals to 
be the national centres, the national subspecialist centres, to be the academic centres, to be the centres for undergraduate and postgraduate training, allows them to be flexible, to be responsive and agile, and to to answer the call when it comes to urgent issues such as the cyber attack, such as COVID. Um, and, and if we lose that, if the voluntaries uh, lose that ability, then again, I, I fear for our ability to attract quality, best quality world-class staff back from, uh, from abroad. We, our ability to retain and attract people will, will, will suffer hugely. And the health service is, is very much about people. It's, uh, yes, it's about facilities, but it's about the environment. It's about the, it's about the, the attracting the right people. If you have the right people, then the, the good things will happen. Um, and it's about encouraging. I mean, the, the, the idea throughout the book is enabling people to flourish. Absolutely. And, and that's what the voluntary sector has done. And, and I hope in the book that I've been able to show readers who, do, who didn't understand what voluntary hospitals were, exactly what voluntary hospitals are and what they have been and what they can deliver if they're given the right, um, the right facilities and the right environment and the right funding to, to, to flourish. Sam, uh, one last note. Um, I thought we might talk about medical leadership because the master uh, arrangement in in Ireland is relatively unusual, if not unique. You have three voluntary maternity hospitals in Dublin, which are really very long established, 250 years and, uh, and, and maybe a bit less. Um, can you talk to me about being a medic in very senior management? You, you, you at one point describe being master as sort of combining the roles of a very senior obstetrician gynecologist with being a chief executive uh, of a large institution. Can you, can you talk to me about uh, being a medic in that kind of leadership role? Yeah, it's scary. <laughs> it's, it's something you're not trained for. Um, it's something that you, you really do dive in the deep end. And e even though you, in the year or two coming up to, to uh, applying for the job, you're thinking about it, you're planning ahead and you're, you're doing your best to put yourself in the right position to do it. Because it, it, is, the, it is the pinnacle for, of your career as an obstetrician. It's something that I always wanted to, to do and I always saw myself doing um but yeah it's it's a little bit scary you are thrown in the deep end and um and for the first couple of years you are you're really learning on on, on your feet um it can be it can be lonely because um this decision making as a, as a leader sometimes is quite lonely i think a lot of it depends on your on your leadership style um some people lead from the front and and, and are, are happy to to do so um and don't need a whole lot of help in, in doing that. Um, some people lead in, in a different way. They, they're, they're, I suppose they, like, like me, I would, I would, I took my job as, uh, okay, I was the, I might've been the prime minister, but I had a cabinet of people, ministers for X, Y, and Z, who were going to help me to deal with all of the various different components of the service that we, that we provide. Um, that's the approach that, that I took. It was a, a, a collegiate approach. It was something. Yeah, yeah. There were times when there was lonely. There were lonely decisions to 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 make, um, but 
I have to say that in, in a hospital such as this, the, the assistance and the help and the collegiality um, that, I, that I got from my friends and colleagues were, was second to none and, and it was incredibly helpful. And I noticed that you said when you were master, it, 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 it occurred fairly powerfully to you that you just simply couldn't know what was going on in every corner. Because, for example, there was the organ retention thing. So now yeah. with a huge institution that has pathology and microbiology and obstetrics and maternal health, so many things going on with subspecialization yeah. that you began to create committees and other well, ways of making decisions. The, one of the fallouts from, um, from the organ retention issue was that I realized that I couldn't possibly understand or know what was going on in every corner of the hospital. So we had to revamp the whole um, governance and reporting structure of the hospital. So a whole new committee structure was was created um, so that I could receive reports from department heads and bring those to the, to the hospital board. And that worked very effectively. And our, our board, I have to say, um, evolved and adapted to to their new responsibilities in, incredibly well um 30 or 40 years ago it you know the, the the master of the of the hospital would have gone to the board and they would have said is everything okay and he'd say yes it is that's absolutely fine you don't need nothing you need to worry about and they'd say thanks very much and off they go it's all changed. Uh, you know the 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 amount of information and the amount of reports the the that that are now produced at board meetings is incredibly detailed. So now, really, what again? What I've taken from the book is that we've moved away from the paternalistic model of the master to, uh, as you say, more like a a, a, a PM, a, a leader of, of of a cabinet. Um, you mentioned at the end of the book how uh, difficult you found it stepping down which in a sense reflected the roller coaster the intensity of the experience over seven years can you um, put that in some perspective now you talk about how domestic life moves on while you're fully engaged with the 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 battles in, in the institution can you talk to us about stepping down and have you recovered yet yeah, I, I think it takes a while. Um, stepping down, I, I think I, I talked to to lots of ex masters of the various maternity hospitals in 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 preparation for the for the book, and um, I thought Sean Daly really captured it really really nicely. Sean was master of the Coombe um, two masters ago, um, and he said the the hardest part about being master is no longer being master. And and he's absolutely right. This is sort of a postmastership syndrome, um, where when you finish, you you drop back into the the ranks of the of hospital staff. Um, someone has taken your job. Someone's taken your office. Someone has taken your role, and and it's and it's difficult to to deal with 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 that. Um, it takes a while to come to terms with it, and you've got to you you kind of search around for something new to do. Um, and I'd say it took me probably the guts of maybe two years to to come to terms with with, with that, which sounds daft, but that's the way it was. So for, perhaps for, we for should me. have someone whispering in our ear. Remember, thou art mortal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But I, I, you know, what, what, I suppose one of the things in in, in writing the book, um, it allowed me to put some of those things to bed. It allowed me to get some things off my chest. It allowed me to. Um, time to re- reflect and and I think that reflection has helped me significantly 
and I hope that it's useful for for people to 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 read it and to learn and 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 to so those reflections can land somewhere um and be in some way helpful to to move things on and to improve um the lot of other people who do the job after me um but also and most importantly to to try and maybe heal some of the 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 relationships that i, th- I think haven't worked particularly well over the last number of years and uh, and uh, there's some pointers in there as to as to i think how we can do that well sam i think it's a really superb book uh, i think it's incredibly important um, I'd love to see and hear of people at the highest reaches of government, uh, the Department of Health, the HSE, as well as any consultant in any specialty in Ireland and, and trainee reading this book, because I think it gives a superb account of the complexities uh, of modern obstetric, um, gynecological and, and maternal health care, uh, as well as uh, the complexities of medical leadership. And I think you've, 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 you've produced an incredibly important book and blueprint for, for, for the future. And uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to the Irish Medical Times. Thanks, Chris. Enjoyed it. You've been listening to an Irish Medical Times podcast, Doctoring with Dr. Chris Luke. Chris spoke to Sam Coulter-Smith for the March edition. For more on Irish Medical Times, go to imt.ie or contact us on Twitter at imt underscore latest or contact us on LinkedIn. If you wish to respond to this podcast, write to chris at editor at imt.ie.